0: Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Kate Fulton,
1: John Kay, Diana Toman and Tony Honigberg.
0: And coming up this week, we're going to be having a chat with Denise Phillips, professional chef and cookery writer. After Pesach, we really do need to know what to do with all of these bits and pieces that we've got on the fridge. And we'll be chatting to Zara Provisor from Leket, which is an Israeli food bank and food charity as well as Bobby Sherman, son of Robert Sherman of the Sherman Brothers. They were famous composers of very famous Disney musicals. More of that later. But before all that, let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week
2: with Vivian Krieger. And we begin with the news that Jeremy Corbyn is ready to discuss specific issues raised by Jewish community leaders. The Labour leader says a meeting with the Board of Deputies in the Jewish Leadership Council could be the start of a fruitful ongoing exchange to address anti-Semitism within his party. Mr Corbyn also said such a meeting could be held without any preconditions. This comes, though, as the Labour leader is criticised for attending a Passover event held by the radical Jewish group known as Judas – Jewish community leaders reacted strongly to secretly recorded footage showing Mr Corbyn going to a Seder with Jews who believe Labour's anti-Semitism crisis is the work of cynical manipulators who are out to damage the party. And Labour has suspended and dropped a local election candidate who's accused of sharing anti-Semitic material. Sameh Habib will no longer be up for election in Northwood on May the 3rd. Habib, the founder and editor of the Palestine Telegraph, was criticised for publishing allegedly anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Human rights organisations have condemned Benjamin Netanyahu for cancelling a deal brokered by the United Nations to save 32,000 African asylum seekers in Israel from deportation. The Israeli Prime Minister had originally agreed that 16,000 of the migrants would be granted a five-year permit, with the other 16,000 taken by Canada, Italy and Germany. However, Mr Netanyahu now says he's suspended implementation of the accord and will rethink the terms. And finally, Canada's Parliament has passed legislation which makes every May Canadian Jewish Heritage Month. The bill was proposed by two Jewish MPs who said it will provide an opportunity for all Canadians to celebrate the incredible contributions that Jewish Canadians make to their country. The news this week.
1: Thank you, Viv. And first on The Jewish Views this week, we have Jack Mendel, who is the online editor of The Jewish News, and he joins us to review the copy of The Jewish News for this week. Let's look at the front pages, Jack, and the headline reads this week, End These Plagues, with a a picture of Jeremy Corbyn.
3: Yes, this is the saga that seemingly is never going to end. Labour's rolling anti-Semitism problem, it's going backwards and forwards. And as I speak to you right now, the Board of Deputies and the Jewish Leadership Council have actually written to Jeremy Corbyn in response to his letter to to the two community organisations. And they may finally confirm a meeting to tackle this problem once and for all. And the letter... It's very clear it signs off saying that they demand actions, not words. It's taken three years to get to the point where they're actually going to talk to each other. And after a week of controversy of the Seder with the left-wing Jewish group Judas that happened on Monday morning, finally, Jeremy Corbyn may actually come face-to-face with so-called mainstream community organisations.
1: I wonder what he'll say to them when he comes face-to-face with them.
3: Well, I think there are a couple of pinch points for the community when it comes to Labour anti-Semitism. First and foremost, Ken Livingstone. Why is he still suspended and not expelled from the Labour Party? What's going to happen to him? And no doubt Jeremy Corbyn's response to that will be the same as it has been up until now, which is it's not his responsibility to decide who is in the party and who gets expelled. There's a process. Everything's about process for Jeremy Corbyn, as we've seen so far. There will be other issues, which is tackling anti-Semitism at all levels of the party, whether that is local councillors who've complained, whether that is right at the top end of the party, with John Landsman of Momentum this week saying that that anti-Semitism is not a smear and it cannot just be overlooked and swept under the carpet. It does exist and it needs tackling and it needs taking seriously.
1: From one political leader to the next, I also understand that you've interviewed Sir Vince Cable.
3: Yes, I spoke to the Liberal Democrat leader this week and he had a few interesting things to say. First and foremost, that should there be a hung parliament or should the Liberal Democrats be in the balance of power at the next election, under no circumstances would he be going into coalition with a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party, which is of course quite poignant as in 2010, the Liberal Democrats teamed up with the Conservatives. And he said that the coalition was good for the country but not very good for the party mm-hmm. and they're not considering coalition in any form really
1: in which case they they're probably counted out unless they become the second major party of course which could happen
3: well not necessarily if they become the second largest party but if they they might hold the balance of power they might be the third or fourth largest party and 10 or 10 or 15 votes can sometimes swing a government as shown with the DUP
1: And as the whole thing, certainly with Jeremy Corbyn and and in the news, ever since Jewish Views interviewed him last week, everything's been about anti-Semitism. What's Sir Vince Cable's view on anti-Semitism?
3: Well, he said that there was a severe problem with prejudice in the Labour Party, not just with anti-Semitism. He mentioned Islamophobia and other forms of racism and discrimination as well. And he spoke at length about what the party has done to try and tackle this. He said that the party has kicked out... David Ward and Jenny Tong, who caused so much pain for the Jewish community with various remarks about Israel and the Holocaust. And they've also taken up educational training. They've had sessions with the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust to learn about the Holocaust and about different forms of anti-Semitism that may not be obvious for politicians.
1: So the the Liberal Democrats could become the uh, Jewish community's friend in Parliament or, or in the Houses of Parliament?
3: Well, he, he certainly told me that there are a number of former Labour voters that he's aware of that have now switched to the Liberal Democrats. The problem is, do the Liberal Democrats have the political clout for people to go and join them? Uh, the Labour Party still do, and that's why so many have stayed in the party.
1: Thank you, Jack. That's where we'll have to leave for this week. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk.
4: Now, do you have any food left over after Seder night? Sometimes I have chocolate left over, sometimes matzo. Well, Denise Phillips is a professional chef and cookery writer. She joins us this week. Denise, do you normally have lots of food left over?
5: Not really, but there's always an abundance of eggs and ground almonds and nuts and oil. And to be perfectly honest, why not make something very creative with it? And what I've made this year is a matzo granola. I think breakfast time is quite challenging. What, you're going to have too many eggs or more bubblers or whatever it may be. It doesn't quite fill you up. But this is tasty, creative and very nutritionally wonderful. And it's vegan. How how trendy is this? So why not? So this is made with a large box of matzah, which I'm sure you've got an abundance of. Four hundred grams of pecan pieces, two hundred grams of desiccated flake coconut, two hundred grams of slivered almonds. Imagine all of that. Crumble up your matzah, and you've got your pecan nuts, coconut, and almonds. And in a separate inner saucepan, put in some three hundred mils honey, one hundred and fifty mils vegetable oil, two teaspoons ground cinnamon and a teaspoon of salt. So honey, oil, cinnamon and salt, bring it to the boil pour it over the crunchy matzah, pop it into the oven for about 15 minutes on 180 and it goes golden of which I've got some in the studio Ooh, here yes. and then I finished it with some raisins or if you want to put some cranberries in now I know I mentioned honey but if you are vegan you can use maple syrup.
4: So, why not? The the thing that worries me is when you add milk to it, it's going to be
1: quite soggy.
5: (laughs) Well, well, that's what happens with all cereals. So, what difference is it? But you don't have to add milk. You could add yogurt or you could have it plain.
1: I just like it actually just straight as it is. But you know what's really good? Because it's still crunchy.
5: Those are doing packed lunches. You can put it into a little carrier bag. It's also a snack on the go. Or why not crunch that onto maybe a salad or something else? Be creative well, with it. Well, that
1: would be
4: different. If anybody missed the recipe, you can get it on the Jewish View's website.
5: So what I going to do, just embellish a little bit more, it is made with wheat bran matzah, which, which is a Rokuzin's brand, which is new this year for Pesach. There actually are a few other new ingredients. You can now get organic white eggs, coconut milk, almond milk, light coconut cream are all made by Libas and they're just, it's really great to see new products coming through Kosher for which makes life just that little bit tastier
1: Do the mozzas taste different?
5: Yes theres they are, they, there's, we got some in there, I've actually mixed it with regular matzo <laughs> it's
1: stopped,
5: not an it's orchestra in here, by the way it's, it's <laughs> the honey and the honey and the oil that's gone really making it really crispy but if there are any of those with nut allergies you don't have to put the nuts in you can just put dried fruits, apricots, cranberries raisins, whatever you want to do so I think it's something suitable for everyone and Can I just it's follow that up and Saying it's
0: delicious mm. I just had a very very nice peek on there it's sort of, it's all, it's all
5: it's cooked coated. into it. It's, it's coated, coated, that's exactly... It's me. coated with the honey and a little mm-hmm. oil, a little bit of salt, and my favourite spice, it's got to be cinnamon.
1: The honey works very well.
5: It
0: does. It does
1: mm. stick it your upper teeth to bottom teeth.
5: <laughs> that's why right, Tony's
0: been so quiet, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Only yours, <Tony. laughs> What do you tend to do with... In my family, we had quite a lot of meat leftovers. Where there seemed to be a family of carnivores, and there were quite a lot of chicken and, and things like that leftovers. What would you uh, advise
5: Well, the last a, few days? Well, I've really got another very quick and easy recipe. Now, you've probably all read and seen that Tiptree Company is now kosher for Pesach. Now, they do a wonderful no-peel orange, I suppose to do marmalade, but it's a no, no-peel orange jam. And this, again, really quick and easy, you just combine the jam, olive oil, garlic and grated ginger, put it in the food processor, or we'll just m- bind it together, it over to raw chicken it's beautiful absolutely divine and that's what's, what's the dish that i'm going to be making a few times over at pesa for me and my family that i wondered where you were going
0: with the tip yes. tree jam i was thinking hang on a sec how are we going to but with the chicken yeah that, that, really that, that of course
1: is presuming you haven't put the butter knife in the <laughs> orange yeah, yeah, yeah. jam to but, stuff. Uh, <laughs> what,
5: yeah, do, uh, just to say that what you really you, you add a uh, six or to eight clementines or tangerines and just slice that through and throw that into the saucepan and finish it off with some chopped, fresh thyme. to just gives it a little bit of colour.
1: Why, why do you think, Denise, that we always buy too much for Pesa?
5: Because I think as a nice Jewish family, wouldn't it just be awful? You didn't have enough food. Now, I think people forget that we have holomoid and all the supermarkets are open. Mm. So a really good tip is, look at what you bought this year. Look at the recipes that you've cooked. How popular were you? Well, all of them as a family and just have a little bit of a planning for schedule for next year that you only need so many boxes mm. of matzo or jam mm. and those processed foods like ketchup. Honestly, you are not going to want to see it thereafter. So mm. please, actually try and do it without the, you know, the, those processed foods and the, really, I think, we don't need do and th- they're very expensive
1: do you think this is left that because we buy so much it's left over from our parents and grandparents because the shops weren't open necessarily during Pesach, and so they had to buy everything up front and they didn't know whether they would use or what they wouldn't use and, and it- do you think that's where it it's comes from? It's a
5: combination of that. And also, not everybody lives near the kosher supermarket. Mm. It could be, I know that Golders Green and Hendon and Andrew, but you yeah. might not live near there. Yeah. And the local supermarkets, I think, you know, Morrison, Sainsbury's, Tesco, they are doing a range, but that will get sold up pretty quick. And you do have
0: to, just a word, you do have to be careful because I noticed in some stores yes. they've been wishing their customers happy Passover and putting all the pasta out.
5: No, so even more do. so. What happens is that on the kosher section, they don't put the pace the off for kosher for pace, and it's almost on the same aisle. And it's really almost bizarre hmm. that even the Hanukkah candles—they just think it's Jewish. It all goes on the same shelf. <laughs> so. They need a little bit of advice there. That's a novel
1: idea. A kosher for Pesach, Hanukkah candles. <laughs> no. But it's true. Somewhere with that.
4: <laughs> you can also, when you buy your kosher for pace of ketchup, of course, ketchup lasts forever, so you can actually use it next Pesach as well. Well, it's very clever, the manufacturers. Do you know what? They put the sale
5: by, use by date, about... February right. next
4: year. Yeah, just before exactly. Pesach arrives. And, it, and, the and if <laughs> you
5: are really going through all of your foods and your, as I have just done a major throw up, which is perfect for Lechet, you know, looking at dates and the use by dates, I'm afraid it goes to the bin. You really can't take chances. So there you go.
6: You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now we're going to talk to Zara Proviso. Who is the UK development coordinator for Leket, which is a food charity
4: based in Israel? Zara, perhaps you can tell us why was Leket set up?
7: Leket was set up fifteen years ago by Joseph Gitlow, who saw that there was food being wasted, and he saw that there were people who needed food, and he decided to do something about it. And he started by himself collecting food from events that he went to. He went into the kitchens at the end of the events, picked up the food, took it home, put it in his fridge. And the next day, took it out to soup kitchens, food charities and so on. That, those were the very humble beginnings.
4: Are there many soup kitchens and food charities in Israel?
7: There are very many. We work with a list of 200 that we have vetted and we continue to vet. And of course, there are many more. We work with uh, registered charities that are vetted by the charity. was the Israeli equivalent of the Charities Commission. Sarah, Um, is
6: that what we would call
7: a food bank? Lekit is a food bank. We don't actually give to the person who's in need in their house. We give to those who give to him. Through the the partnership with 200 non-profit food agencies, we deliver food each week to an average of 200,000 people.
0: You have this amazing program whereby people can go along to the farms and to all sorts of places where produce is grown and actually collect the fruit and vegetable
7: from the trees and from the ground.
0: And where does that go?
7: That also, that is included in the food that goes to 200,000 people each week. What happened was when Joseph started the program 15 years ago, he also said to the nonprofits, what else would you like to receive for your? People and they said, Well, we really need fruits and vegetables, but we don't have time to do anything about it. So he did something about it. And we work with a very, very large database of farmers. And if I can just give you the amount of food, fresh fruits and vegetables that we have received from farmers in the last month, it's 1,700 tons of fruits and vegetables in the last month, which is an increase on previous months. And that has all gone out to the people that we service or the nonprofits that we service. From those very humble beginnings that Joseph had 15 years ago, we in the, 2017, we rescued 2,300,000 hot, nutritious meals and 14,500 tonnes of agricultural produce. And all that was sent out to, to those who need it.
1: Do you collect from general people or just from commercial premises or farms?
7: We're very strict about where we collect from. The agricultural produce comes from farms. It comes from farms, it comes from kibbutzim. We have farmers who have heard about us and contact us now. We have an arrangement with the Ministry of Agriculture, whereas if for some reason the farmer cannot sell his food at market... He can donate it to us and he can claim compensation from the Ministry of Agriculture. A lot of the hot food comes from hotels. We work with over 20 hotels, more than 45 army bases. We also collect from private events. If, you know, quite a lot, it's quite fashionable for English people to get married in England during the summer. And, and a couple can arrange with the hall and the caterer that at the end of the event, any food that is still in the kitchen can be collected by Leket. We won't take anything that's been sitting on the buffet, and the same goes for the hotels. But I'm sure, as you realise, any self-respecting caterer or hotel is not going to just have the food that they've got out on, on the buffet. They're going to have almost the same left in the kitchens. So we collect from hotels in Elat, from hotels in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. And all that food goes to those who might not otherwise have a hot meal.
4: When you say otherwise might not have a hot meal, who are we talking about? What section of society...
7: Well, we're talking about from the youngest members of society into the oldest. The hot meals that are rescued from the army and the hotels go primarily to youth at risk in schools for youth at risk. Uh, that means children who it's better that they stay in school than that they go home at the end of the day. And also to the elderly living in very basic government hostels and day centers. Let's talk about the youth first. They, there were many, there are schools that approached Lekhet and said, we have a way of keeping these children in school and giving them extra education, but they won't pay attention because they're hungry and we haven't got any money to pay for food. In Israel, there are no school dinners once you get to high school. There are very few schools that get schooled in as they much younger children. After that, it requires a parental contribution in only in certain areas. The children that we're talking about, their school, they finishes at one or two, and that's it. Then they're they out on the streets. So the schools found a way of keeping the kids in school. They found funding for extra afternoon activities, but they came looking to like it to Have the children concentrate in the afternoon because we all know that a hungry child is not going to concentrate. Some of these children don't have hot meals during the day. They don't have hot meals when they get home in the evening and maybe they'll have a hot meal at their grandma on a Friday night. Leckett advises the schools on how to create dining rooms and the children receive the food from five-star hotels, from chains that we all know, from the Leonardo hotels, from Isotel, from other chains as well.
6: This must involve an enormous amount of staff.
7: Uh, where is your funding coming from? The funding comes from generous donors. There's only one very small project that we get money from the government. Otherwise, we spend our well, the, our department spends our time looking for kind and generous people who will donate the funds to us. What, what I can tell you is that for every shekel that is donated, we redistribute, we rescue, and redistribute three point six shekels of food. If you translate that into pounds, it's approximately for every one pound, four pounds worth of food is rescued and distributed, which is quite good value for money, I think. The other section of, of society that receives the hot food are the elderly living in hospitals. A lot of them are Russian immigrants who don't have pensions from their work life. You know, it's the same in the UK. If you have to exist on a very basic government pension, you're not going to have a lot of spare money. You're going to have to choose whether you buy medication, whether you put on the heating, whether you buy your grandchildren a toy. And you might be quite isolated. So that's, you know, those are the two main sections.
0: I know you had a big drive last year for people to come and, um, and I came myself with my family to come and pick up oranges. Yes. What's new since last year? I know you've been in the news a bit recently.
7: Yes, we recently re- released our third report into food waste and rescue in Israel. Where we found that 2.3 million tons of food is wasted in Israel. If half of that was used to rescued and redistributed, there wouldn't be a problem of poverty. 50% of it is rescuable and suitable for human consumption. Now, Three years ago, Lek decided to start producing these reports in conjunction with BDO Israel because we want to put pressure on the government to encourage companies to give their food to be rescued. The Knesset recently has started donating its own surplus food. In other countries, in England as well, England has a long-term plan dealing with food waste. Israel doesn't. There's, not no, there's no policy in place We need to have a policy in place. It's one of the things that we're working on. So we recently released the report. What I can tell you is that in response to the report, it was very well received by companies, by people in the food industry. And what's happened is a couple of companies have come to us and said, "Okay, fine, we have caterers coming in to do lunches in our, in our workplace cafeteria. We have a few different sites and now as a result of your report we are making the caterer sign a clause that if there is surplus food they will donate it to Leket Israel.
4: Zara, thank uh, you very much yeah. indeed for joining us today. Thank you for telling us about Leket. I'm sure there are many of us that didn't know very much about it and clearly you're doing good work over there but you're also doing work over here in order to help fund it. So best of luck and thanks very much
1: indeed. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email us at studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com stroke thejewishviews. And on Twitter, we are at Jewish views UK. Or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk.
0: That ties in very nicely, actually, Denise. What Zara was saying to us about not wasting food—it is so important when you when you're catering for mass numbers like we do on Pesach, like we do on Simchas and parties. It's really important not to waste food, but how do we avoid it when people people like choices and so you end up making more of everything?
5: It is really challenging, to be perfectly honest. And if you really have from as a caterer point of view, you can't run out. That is just the height of any Jewish caterer, the, the be-all, the end, the disaster of the evening, the whole simch, which just was not enough food. So I think it's a lovely idea. Personally, if we could do this initiative in the UK, it'd be just wonderful, but it's a matter of transporting it, I would have thought.
1: Out, out of curiosity, how, I mean, obviously, you, you, as you say, you must overcook, but do, do you sort of have a, a percentage of what you overcook for functions? Mm-hmm.
5: Well, I think you have guidelines more than anything else. So, I suppose you know that so many, and you also, a lot, lot of invitations actually say, do you want a fish, a meat or vegetarian mm. option, That's which trend. cuts back all the wastage. Mm. There's always going to be people that either forget what they ordered or they changed their mind. Last and there will be people that unfortunately don't make the simpler. So, there will be some, and also they're going to feed their staff. So. You know, you have to try and think, well, what they have often have to be, you know, allocated. And the band, they all have meals.
6: And the photographer. Don't forget the the photographer.
0: (laughs) Thank you.
5: So, (laughs) it doesn't always go to to waste. And if you're really clever, you'd use some of these things to recreate them in something else for, Mm. for another function or... A recipe you'd like but, to you know be creative with new recipes have got to be written
1: but of course to give to a, a charity is actually really something nice to do yes yeah, it's,
5: mm. it's wonderful yes, i've really got a simple coming up next year so it did actually cross my mind maybe i could do
4: something here mm. in the uk it is a good use of extra food but isn't it a shame and i think the criticism can be leveled at food banks here as well that we need them in the first place and that perhaps the state, whether it be in Israel or in Britain, should ensure that actually people don't need to acquire food in this way.
6: Yes, indeed. And Denise, is it not time-specific? I mean, you've got this Simcha, you've got food left over, and it's midnight. How and where are you going to store it in order to get it to a charity while it's still reasonably fresh?
5: Well, it depends what it is. If it hasn't actually been touched, maybe you've got a raw ingredient, or maybe it's dry rice something like that or right. potatoes that haven't been cooked vegetables that haven't been cooked they won't necessarily cook everything there'll be fruit and to be honest if they've really done got it from the wholesale it's so fresh as in the supermarkets theirs doesn't come to three four days mm. later mm. so it's in a better condition than you know perhaps you would have got it off the shelves
0: I often think that that we worry too much about the health. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be obviously very vigilant about hygiene in the kitchen. But sometimes don't you think there's a bit of over-concern, over-anxiety about keeping food, preserving food. I mean, you know, I I, I freeze. I'm a great believer in freezing. What I do is I I portion, I school children, not school children anymore, university children and older. And we put things, I sometimes put things in little packages like takeaway. Mm. I buy these takeaway cartons and sort of little takeaway meals. But I think a lot of people sort of, I just see these things sliding into the bin. And I, I find it quite horrifying, and great people trays people
1: of things. People are so wasteful, aren't they, with food? You know, we, we, we recycle everything. You know, it gets made into something else. And, and <laughs> I'm, I'm not coming round to your. <laughs> I also think
5: the company, food companies are using it as a way to generate more business because yeah. they'll put in a, a within range a use by and sell by date. So which means that you will, those are really, really strict. And you have to be careful with young children and old people anyway.
6: And it depends on the food.
5: And, of course, on the food. Yeah. But if you, if if my motto is, if in doubt, throw it out. Mm. But smell it, look at it. If there's mildew, obviously you throw it. Well, but that's, that's be, the be, thing. be sensible about it. But there are some you know ingredients that, honestly, they would last for ages. You know, well beyond their time.
1: Mm. Correct. Certainly dried ingredients. Yes. tin foods, yes. <laughs> like those yeah. things. Yes.
5: If it's, you know... Frozen peas. I mean, I think you'd be all right for you know an extra month over the use by date. Honestly, really do. Yeah.
1: Make it into a soup before. Absolutely.
4: <laughs> but <laughs> not
5: overpay. Not over pesos. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I remember watching one of those programs the other week about life in the nineteen seventies in Britain, and it featured Bee Jam, who were the first people to have frozen food mm-hmm. before Iceland. Yes. That's right. And at the time, a lot of people said all oh, this frozen food can't be good for you, can it? But actually, it's equally as or
1: good. as so, so fresher. Absolutely. Yeah, Yes. If, it's,
0: if it's frozen straight from pick, yeah. exactly.
1: I mean, we've got a problem these days, haven't we? Now We're, they're talking about the plastics in the, the, the fish in, in the sea are, are swallowing, and but it hasn't. Yeah, can't, can't use straws and yeah. cups from coffee shops and that it, sort That's of. right. Yeah, everything's coming into it. Denise, thank you very much. It's been uh, a good insight into thank you. not only Pesach food but food in general. What you can do throughout the year so as they say why wait
5: best (laughs) issues
4: thank you thank you you're listening to the Jewish Views in association with the Jewish News now do you remember Mary Poppins Chitty Chitty Bang Bang Jungle Book classic Disney musicals and who was responsible for them well for the music it was the Sherman Brothers now Bobby Sherman is the son of Robert Sherman, one of the composers, and Phil Dave has been speaking to him, and he asked Bobby to give us an insight
8: into what life was really like growing up in the Sherman household. I always knew the idea of being a songwriter or being a songwriter's son in my early days, obviously, was one of the coolest things you could be. Everybody else had fathers who were, in those days, moms didn't always, mostly mostly were stay at home, but, you know, fathers were lawyers and doctors, and that was all very interesting. But a songwriter was a poet. It was like a swashbuckler. It was, a, it was just something very exciting about it. And there must
9: have been some enormous, and probably still is, a sense of pride that whenever you heard the music that even your father, or indeed your uncle, created that made you think, yeah, that's
8: that's my family that's done that. Absolutely, and in fact, uh, I, like it's, it's a sort of a thing in reverse because my I, I you might say that in my early years I lived vicariously through my father's successes, which usually you think of parents doing that with their kids, but in my case it was different. I remember I got to go to the Oscars a couple times. I watched my dad when he was nominated, and unfortunately. The years that I was alive, my dad never won an Oscar, but he was nominated about six or seven times in my lifetime. And so to watch to watch the thing, and I root in it and because I thought to myself, because I'd always known the stories from my older brothers and sisters how when my dad did win the Oscars in 1965 for Mary Poppins, that he came to school and he showed the Oscars to all the kids in the class, and I knew how popular I would be if I had that moment. And it never happened. And it was something that, that to this day, just, to, you know, when you have something that, that unrequited something, even if it's something from your childhood, and it's something that I still that never, never quite, I never got to grasp it, I never got to not to have that. So it was something that I very much lived for his successes and wanted him to have that one more glory, that one more chance to be on top. Are the accolades still in the family. Have you still got the Oscars? The Oscars are actually right behind you in that suitcase because they're going to be on display tonight. Of course, we're doing A Spoonful of Sherman, and, and, and this is right before A Spoonful of Sherman. So the Oscars are actually right here in this room. How oh, very exciting.
9: I don't think I've ever been in such close proximity yeah, to an
8: Oscar. Coincidence, yes. And I've now had to drag them all the way up to the top floor of the Greenwich <laughs> Theatre, which is slightly disturbing and annoying to me because there wasn't some somebody, some sycophant running around to pick them up for me, but I had to uh, drag them up. My,
9: my trainer would be proud. Was there ever any question of you going into similar lines of work?
8: Did you ever think, oh, I don't want to go into the family business? Actually... No, I always knew that I wanted to be a songwriter. My Quite literally, and it's a very strange statement, I realized My earliest memory is that I wanted to be a songwriter.
9: How about actually, because we are already on the Jewish views, what was the, the Jewish element to your upbringing, would you
8: say? What was my Jewish element? You ask me. <laughs> you ask me these questions. What wasn't a Jewish element? There's so many ways to answer that. You know, it's, it's a funny thing when you're in a world and you're amongst other Jews as well, because I grew up in Beverly Hills, which was probably 85, 90 percent Ashkenazi Jewish and reform, American reform, not like the British reform, which is more like the liberal. You don't really see people as Jews. You just see them as other people. It's when you get outside of that bubble that you start to notice. oh, you know, I think he's a member of the tribe. He's a member of the, you know. But what happened was you know, I mean, there are things that that I noticed in certainly in my dad's work, like for example, "Feed the Birds," famous song from Mary Poppins, talks about St Paul's Cathedral. But actually, when you look at the at the song title, what it's about, here's a song that is uniquely Jewish because what does it talk about? It talks about the merits of giving charity to the giver of uh, of the charity, and that's a uniquely Jewish kind of an idea. And you know, it's the first time anybody wrote a popular song that was about this kind of a this kind of a concept and and so there's a lot of yiddishkeit in My father's work i think in the values of what i write i did a musical about the great plague and fire of london called bumble scratch a couple years ago and the whole idea of finding a forgiving god who you don't have to you don't have to bend over backwards to he just ultimately is a forgiving god because because our god is not one that has precondition to forgive and that's a very jewish thought as well
9: now speaking of the jewish elements obviously your family
8: is very associated with the disney
9: corporation. And unfortunately, there have been a lot of accusations thrown against Walt Disney saying that he wasn't very understanding towards Jewish people. Now you knew Walt Disney, so your family did.
8: What would you say that your experiences of the man was? Well, first of all, I was born about 18 months after he passed away, so so this isn't personal recollection. But let me preface the, your ans the answer to this by first stating a little background. In my dad was born in 1925. He was 17 years old in 1943, and very much eager to fight Nazis in World War II. Joined the army early so that he could fight Nazis. Went into very dangerous missions. And was one of the first of eight men at the liberation of Dachau, a concentration camp, at its very liberation, when nobody knew what it was. My dad, in life, did not take anti-Semitism as a minor thing or you know brush it off if somebody made an anti-Semitic. He was a tough guy, my dad and his certainly his youth and even middle age and, and you know could hold his own in a, in a proper fist fight if he needed to. he didn't go around looking for fist fights, but he was a big guy. You look at pictures of him from that time, six foot one and he could handle himself. He and I could tell you stories where he confronted anti-semites. Walt Disney was no anti-semite. My dad would have told you that if he was sitting here right now. My uncle would tell you that. And then in fact there were many Jewish people more orthodox than my parents or my, my father and uncle were, because my father and uncle weren't orthodox. They were reformed, but but there were people who were yarmulkes at the studio. There were people and Walt Disney oftentimes actually once there was an anti Semitic jibe made at my dad and uncle. And Walt Disney stopped the guy and, and corrected him, said, Don't make those kinds of comments. So so Walt Disney was phylo-semitic. Walt Disney was a futurist. You look at his life, you look at his actions, he was a futurist, you know, he was the lover of humanity. He he thought of ways that the world could come together. He, you know, he he thought, you know, Feed the Birds was his favorite song. We talked talk about the merits of green charity. You know, that was actually his favorite song. He thought, you know, if people just do a small little thing for somebody. And many times he helped my father in his career and my uncle so the origins where do the origins of this rumor of this rumor come from and i'm pretty sure i know there was a book in 1967 written by a sort of disgruntled author so it was all about Walt Disney and you know the fact that he felt and and basically it was one of these dark books and not a kiss and tell because but it was it was supposed to show all the darkness how he didn't how he was bad to women in the workplace how he was bad to to jews and bad to other people and the truth is it's nonsense. First of all, it was a different time in the nineteen forties, and the nineteen thirties. Did Walt Disney make some offhanded remark to somebody? You know, maybe maybe somebody who wasn't Jewish and make a joke. Yeah, it's possible that he did. I don't think that they, I don't think that he did, but you know, I have no proof that he did. But I certainly wouldn't hold it against somebody. I mean, amongst us Jews, we who, who amongst us hasn't heard a joke about some other eth- ethnicity amongst ourselves. And you know, we probably shouldn't have done it. We probably shouldn't have said it, but you can't you can't hold somebody you can't hold somebody's legacy up against that. You have to look at their deeds and their actions and things that are on the, in the public display and there's nothing that you can point to Walt Disney that says that he was that he was bad to these people relative to anybody else of his time and in fact, he was better than most. I think there'll be a lot
9: of people who are quite reassured to hear that, but we haven't even touched upon A Spoonful of Sherman, which, of course, is what you mentioned earlier on. It's why we're here. Tell us a bit about the
8: show. A Spoonful of Me, Spoonful of Sherman. Uh Spoonful of Sherman is a show that actually, you know, if you're interested in reading more about my dad, there was a book that we released Uh, four years ago, that was his autobiography. It was posthumously released. And I needed to have like a book signing, some sort of a launch. And it just seemed kind of depressing. My dad was gone. So he said, no, we'll do a musical memorial, happy memorial to my dad's life. And that's how this was born. And I was the narrator. Flash forward three years, uh, three years later, uh, one year ago, and my producing partner, James Yoburn, came to me and he said, he "Said, look, you know that show, Spoonful of Sherman, you've done it a couple times, small version, we want to do it big. You're not going to be in it, Robbie, because this needs to be with dancers and it needs to be with singers, you know, proper stage. I want a West End show, a musical stage show. I said, okay, I'm, I'm in. And so uh, we gathered the in- investors together, and we, uh, we put together the business model. And right now it's on tour. It's touring over 20, 25 cities right now on this tour. And then it has very big future plans. It's basically, you know, it's the songs that everybody grew up with. My father and uncle wrote the songs from Mary Poppins, The Jungle Book, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Aristocats, all the Winnie the Pooh movies over the years. I mean, these are the songs, these are what we call the songbook of your childhood, People will leave the theater and they'll be wiping tears of joy from their face. It's not an exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. People are embraced by this. You know, most of the stuff, you know, you might hear a song from Mary Poppins and it's on TV. It's nice. But when you go to a theater, whether it's a movie theater or a theatrical experience, it's much more of an intense, inclusive. It's not a voyeuristic experience like a TV, watching a TV at the end of the room. You're, you're, You're captured by it and people you know they sing along they clap along you know and it's and it's very very powerful moving experience and it happens night after night we've been on tour now for a month and i have to say i haven't heard a single negative about it
1: And that was Bobby Sherman, son of Robert Sherman of the Sherman Brothers fame, talking to our very own Phil Dave about his show Spoonful of Sherman. And if you want to know more about the show Spoonful of Sherman, you can get that from our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And he was talking there about Walt Disney not being anti-Semitic. And actually, I quite agree with him. I don't think Walt Disney was anti-Semitic. If he was, why did he employ so many Jewish people? Yeah,
6: quite. With all the directors that there were around, the lyricists, the composers, they were all, bar one, which was Cole Porter, I think, were all Jewish. And
1: he thought he was Jewish, I think.
6: (laughs) What I think was particularly poignant was that he was born... Uh, did he say a few months or a few days or
4: 18 months after after, Walt Disney died? Because
6: one has this nice mental picture of him being, he obviously revered him, and it would have been nice as a little boy if he could have sat on Walt's knee, you know.
4: (laughs) (laughs) But I'm encouraged by what he said about Walt Disney because all of us have seen those films and so many other Walt Disney productions that it would be an enormous shame if that, you know, coloured what we felt about Walt
1: Disney. If we take the whole of Hollywood, most of the studios were Jewish-owned, of course, and Walt Disney was a, a non-Jewish-owned studio. So so he's, he was surrounded by rivalry, if you like, and all the rivalry was Jewish. Although subsequently, of course, the
3: Walt
4: Disney Corporation has had Jewish chief executives like Michael Eisner Mm. is one that springs to mind. And certainly there's no um, slur on the organisation these days. But sometimes there are question marks over people and it's very difficult. Mm. Many years after their death, it's always disappointing when you actually get somebody that is so talented and you hear some allegations like you hear
1: about Walt Disney. Diana mentioned Cole Porter before and I always tell the story about Cole Porter who struggled and struggled to make it as a songwriter. And then he went, one day he came up, he went to one of the Gershwins and said, I have got it. He said, I now know what I'm doing wrong. I am not writing like a Jew. (laughs) <laughs> and what he wrote a song and he wrote night and day <laughs> really, right and he was writing in major key he wasn't writing in a minor key and most Jewish music is written in a minor key mm. and he suddenly re- wrote night and day which is on a minor key and it became a hit and that was his first hit having oh. been
4: having been a child throughout the period of when Mary Poppins Chitty Chitty Bang Bang came out Jungle Book I also would forgive the Disney Corporation for Dick Van Dyke's Cockney accent,
1: (laughs) which I actually, as a child, would not have known wasn't authentic. Strangely enough, Dick Van Dyke recently said of himself in that film, what an awful Cockney accent I did.
4: I I think he he was great, very talented, and now he's 93 and still
1: acting. Still working, yes. Amazing.
6: Well, unfortunately, that's nearly it for this episode of Jewish Views. But it's time now for our Rabbinic Thought for the Week. and This time it comes from Rabbi Stephen Katz of Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue.
10: On Sunday morning, Jewish bakeries will once again enjoy their customary long queues as we Jews seek to fill our empty larders and bread bins with a generous assortment of bagels and baguettes. The tastes, the sounds, the smells of the Pesach Seder will soon disappear. Yet the Torah urges us, Remember the day of your exodus from Egypt, all the days of your life. This Wednesday evening is Erev Yom HaShoah, the eve of the Holocaust Memorial Day for the six million Jews who perished in the death camps and the ghettos, in the ravines and the forests, on cattle trucks and on death marches in Nazi-occupied Europe. Let me share with you the story of a young Jew who set out to remember the loss of so much Jewish life and so many Jewish lives all the days of his life. The shocking evidence, the tangible trauma of the Shoah had reached around the world by the time Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, called a meeting of all the yeshiva boys at the Lubavitch Brooklyn headquarters in 1944. The Rebbe gently told the youngsters some of what was happening to their brothers and sisters in Europe. With tearful words, he asked the children to refrain from indulging in extra treats so as to empathize in some small way with the pain of Jews in Europe. The following week, the Rebbe made the same request, and then again the following week. Subsequent meetings were no longer necessary, as the children clung ferociously to their resolutions to give up some treats. The Lubavitcher Rebbe had family trapped in Europe, but understood that children in his care lived in the bubble of their community, but had to learn as part of their maturity, part of their Yiddishkeit to feel the pain of others, especially their fellow Jews in Europe. This story has been related by one of these children, who today is a great-grandfather. To this day, he reveals, he cannot bring himself to eat ice cream, the particular treat from which he had abstained as a nine-year-old back in 1944. May the joys and the sorrows the triumphs and the tragedies of our 4,000-year Jewish experience resonate in us all the days of our lives.
4: Rabbi Stephen Katz from Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. Well, that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thanks to our guests today, Zara Provisor, Denise Phillips and Bobby Sherman. Thanks also to our producer Sue Greenberg and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. I'm John Kay. I'm Kate Fulton. I'm Tony Honigberg. And me, Diana Thoman. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.